are they is it satiated now is it uh, still looking for more turnouts to eat or we've had one incident uh where the cat was able to jump up on a shelf and uh do a similar piece of operation but aside from that uh we haven't had any problems but uh, chris you and i had the opportunity to actually talk off the show uh last week we had a wonderful chat as i was walking um last saturday and I was talking to you about the numbers, actually, and this is an interesting piece of feedback because uh, I, I want to give a shout-out to a fellow called Neil Salan, who was actually a friend of my mother's um, in the early 1990s in Australia. And he discovered the show purely by chance through iTunes and then contacted me saying, oh, do you remember me? And I said, oh, yes, yeah, I, I vaguely do. So the show's getting out to enough people that even... Uh, even folks that knew my mother in the early 90s are, are finding the show and uh, and getting involved with it. And for folks listening in, this really is about listener-generated content. So if you have questions, get on the mailing list and ask them. Because I certainly when I gave you the, the kind of numbers that we're running with currently, Chris, you seemed quite surprised that we had so many people listening in, but not necessarily people who are actually emailing questions and things like that. Uh, yeah, I thought the numbers were... Well, I, I wasn't really sure what to expect in terms of numbers. I wasn't aware of how many people were uh, logging in or tuning in, I guess, in this case. And uh, if they have any feedback or suggestions or comments, questions, be more than happy to hear it. And uh, maybe we can take, uh, take a few paths and explore a few topics that we hadn't thought of yet. Terrific. So um, whilst I went to the post office today and, and sent you a parcel, which goes back to my kind of open source stuff where um, I send parcels of, of things as I find them around the house to, to people on occasion, we both took a trip to different hobby stores today. Would you like to give some kind of narration to your experience at the hobby store? And I understand you had a, a long conversation over lunch associated with Model Rail as well. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a great morning. Uh, a little bit of a long drive. To, uh, to get to this particular hobby shop. It's um, down close to Niagara Falls. Um, and it's uh, Niagara Central Hobbies, a brilliant store. Um, you know how the, the mom-and-pop hobby shop is kind of uh, suffering from, a, from attrition right now. They're, we're losing quite a few of them. Um, and the big box uh, hobby shops or the mainstream hobby shops and outlets are kind of taking over and the internet's kind of taking over. Well, this, this is a real traditional kind of grand old hobby shop with uh, half of it devoted to model trains and the other half to all the other uh, pursuits. And uh, excellent selection, N scale, HO scale, uh, garden rail, and uh, in the basement, uh, some vintage stuff, Lionel, American Flyer, um, parts, detail parts, um, and uh, magazines, uh, stacks and stacks of old magazines that you can go through and pick up for, oh, 50 cents or a dollar or whatnot for the uh, the older articles that you might want to look at for construction or inspiration. Um, so we spent a good hour and a bit poking around in there and, and uh, found a few interesting items, uh, books, from estate sales and uh, old old kits, and picked up a picked up a kit for my dad, and uh, Trevor picked up a new book for himself, and 
and we wandered off to discuss the hobby in general over over a good lunch at uh, in Niagara on the Lake. So there was another couple of hours of chatting about the hobby in general and in some specifics because we're both talking about planning uh, planning stages for layouts and uh, thought processes and the uh, <coughs> Gibbons and Druthers and and uh, all the other good stuff that goes into to the uh, brain strain portion of, of getting a railroad up and running. And uh, it was a terrific, uh, terrific day despite the cold and uh, well, worth the, well worth the time on the road. And uh, we chased, as a matter of fact, after we were finished lunch, we chased around uh, through the area looking up uh, old rail lines, yards, um, level crossings, some industries that are still served by rail that would make uh, interesting topics for uh, either layout design elements or uh, just small industries on a layout, uh, everything from paper mills to um, small foundries and a chemical processing plant and a, a transfer warehouse with a couple of spots for rail cars and trucks. It's quite, uh, quite good. Found a few track arrangements that I thought only existed on the model, but uh, um, there was one particularly with two facing turnouts crossing in a diamond because there was not enough room between two adjacent uh, roadways to, to fit uh, nice sweeping curves in. So they kind of lapped over like a scissors uh, joint, which I had only ever seen in the model before. And, you know, all in all, a very good day uh, associated with with trains in general. Very good, very good. So in the area that you're in, what are, what are the hobby stores like? Do you really have to do that kind of drive in order to find one, or is this just a particularly epic hobby store as they go in your area? Um, actually, on the way home from work, there's a very, very good one that focuses strictly on trains, uh, the Credit Valley Railway which oddly enough used to be a railway in the area and the owner of the store bought the name of the railway and opened a hobby shop uh, under that uh, title. And uh, you can always get uh, K&S parts or the, the brass strip, uh, Woodland Scenics scenery products, some detail parts, uh, excellent selection of H-O-N-N, um, Mount Albert uh, strip wood and siding. Uh, good grief. They do repairs, uh, decoder installations, all manner of things. And, of course, all the publications, the print publications are there. And all the new, um, uh, the new books, when they come out, they're always, uh, always on hand. So an excellent place to run into local hobbyists. Uh, when you're just wanting to either kill some time or make some contacts or find out what's going on in the area in terms of um, shows and events. Uh, there was another one uh, downtown, uh, my local area, but they seem to have um, closed up their entire model railway section and they're down to military models, plastic models, um, and some RC which I found really kind of odd, but because they had a really, really knowledgeable train person uh, on staff 
and uh, I get the impression when he when he left for other other pursuits, they they basically decided that they weren't going to support that part of the the hobby anymore. So um, there are a couple. There was one uh, near Trevor that was a staple business for years and years and years since the 60s. George's Trains. They closed down that location and opened one in an industrial park in the East End, and it's a bit of a drive now. And uh, it's probably worth it. They have, a, again, a good selection. But compared to 10 years ago, there's probably half of the hobby stores that used to be in the area. So the odd trip outside the, the locale is, is definitely worth it. But if you want these sort of stores to stay alive and provide you with the ability to test locomotives and see new locomotives and uh, and rolling stock and whatnot and have a place to go and buy things uh, either on impulse or bulk purchases or whatnot somebody to order it for you and bring it in you've got to you've got to support them obviously so right now uh, I can recall one incident at uh, at Credit Valley. Somebody came in and was talking to the staff at length about a a new uh, Atlas uh, diesel with sound and everything. And they did the demo and went through the whole the whole spiel and took it out of the case and ran it for them and answered all their questions. And then in the end, they the customer said, "Well, that's great. I'm just going to go buy that online now for." $25 cheaper than your price. So, a bit of a kick in the teeth. Certainly. And, well, you know, takes all kinds, <laughs> but uh, it was a bit distressing, um, especially after you spend, you invest time as a salesperson to, uh, to try and support the customer's questions and, and, uh, give them some guidance or assistance. So, But not everybody's like that, and that's why we still have the hobby stores we have. I guess the ones that are left are probably the strongest of the bunch, and people who went to the other stores are now going to kind of cluster around the ones that are remaining. But I'm a bit worried for the long term with the just the, uh, the depth of penetration that the Internet has and the the scope that it can reach. You can buy pretty much anything on the net. It's just tough if you haven't seen it prior. You know, like most people, I like to check something out, see it firsthand before I put down the money. And I guess if the price difference isn't too great, I I really don't mind uh, buying stuff from the stores. I go there, well, being an S-scale, it's kind of hard to go into a store and buy anything anyway. So uh, the only dealer of S in this area is Two and a two-hour drive, two and a two and a quarter-hour drive, and he doesn't stock everything. He's happy to order it in, but I have to know what I want beforehand and and kind of call and wait a few weeks for it to come in. So, um, but for generic scenery material, raw materials, adhesives, uh, magazines, and whatnot, I I support the local stores. I go in and and pick up what I want, just like. Uh, I guess you were, you were saying you had a, a good trip to a shop this morning as well? Well, I think the the problem with Las Vegas is there's no real 
middle class, which means the kind of stores that you describe are far from the ones that we can find in Las Vegas. Of the stores here, there are three reasonably good ones. Maybe three, yes. Um, one is um, out on the Boulder Highway. I can't think of its name, but it is probably one of the... Well, it's one of the longest-running train stores in Las Vegas. It's run by an old fellow who won't touch anything DCC. You can get um, strange, curious, out-of-production things there. Whenever the uh, train shows are in town... I tend to find myself there just because the characters that come through, you tend to get a, a better conversation than you do at the train shows because they're actually looking around and amazed to find things there. I've found some real bargains there, um, particularly with regards to locomotives. Um, and I think the fellow is extraordinarily knowledgeable, although he won't touch anything DCC. He has limited... Having said that he has eclectic stock, he also has very limited stock and my suspicion is that he probably has a warehouse somewhere and he moves his stock in um, progressively. The other store um, on the other side of town, which I think is called Westside Trains, is run by a fellow who's semi-retired, and he drives a Corvette. He obviously made a bit of money doing something else, and his dream is to run a little train store. And that's quite a good store. That is also a store where you'll get second-hand stuff uh, strike up a conversation with him. He'll pass on cards of people in the area. But again, very limited stock and certainly no DCC installation. And the final store, which I go to because it actually has a, a broader selection of things, not just model rail related, um, but a wide variety of UK magazines, hobby related, not necessarily trains, the uh, radio controlled boats and military and this kind of stuff. Um, and that's a Hobbytown USA. But the Hobbytown USAs, or certainly the ones in Vegas, are all um, owner-owned franchises, I guess that's the term, where they're not actually, they just buy the name Hobbytown USA and probably some of the distribution rights, but they are effectively uh, a local hobby store. We had one very close to us that closed down probably two years ago that had phenomenally bad service. But the uh, other one on the other side of town on... Sahara and Decatur, for folks listening in, in Las Vegas. Um, that has a, a pretty good selection, but none of these stores are as good as the ones that you're describing. Uh, they are, you know, they're, they're frequented by different kinds of people. And, uh, for example, the Hobbytown USA, uh, fathers with young children uh, seem to be a large part of their clientele. As I was walking around... Uh, there was a father carrying a, a toddler in his arms who had fallen asleep and probably an eight-year-old that was running around <laughs> looking at various things. And then there's a kind of RC section. And, you know, it covers various areas, not particularly thoroughly, but in terms of the UK magazines, um, and occasionally there are, some good, um, there are some good train books there. I did look at the uh, Walther's 2010 catalogue, particularly with regards to the downstairs layout, which we'll talk about a little bit, in the show, and just thought, no, I, I probably need to do more investigating before I spend the $15 on that. I saw um, Tony Costa's multi-shelf layout book, and I don't know, I, as when I started the show, I don't necessarily think that all the publications that are coming out currently relating to model railroading are particularly good, and I thumbed through that and thought, mm, I've never really been a big fan of Tony Costa's work, um, and that wasn't one for me. 
But uh, so these hobby stores aren't brilliant. The one thing I won't do currently is order stuff online associated with the hobby. I've had a couple of really bad experiences recently with ordering stuff online recently being probably the past three months. And I think I'm much rather interested in actually going into a hobby store, physically seeing something, having some kind of interaction with it, and then making the purchase. And really, cost is no... Well, cost is obviously something that I factor in, but I would much rather spend even double what I would spend online and get something that's worthwhile rather than spend half as much online and get something which wasn't what I needed. Um, In terms of my kind of experiences going into hobby stores, you can spend more time looking and more time thinking about you know, actual application and, and putting things into a layout. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a hobby of luxury and I don't mind spending even the same again as what I would spend online to have the opportunity to interact with something early on because realistically, forking out money online and getting completely the wrong thing and waiting um, an excessive amount of time doesn't hold the, the same value. So my experiences with regards to local hobby stores is not like even in the UK. In the UK, there are far better hobby stores than there are here. But Las Vegas is a very brutal place with regards to... Um, I mean, even even our local dentist has gone out of business. <laughs> and, you know, there, there are stores that are collapsing, you know, very, very rapidly. The other place which I should mention uh, is a place that's run by um, Korean, Vietnam and Second World War veterans, which is in Henderson, which is a town over from us. And that is a pretty good hobby store. But again, it has a train section which is about 15 feet worth of aisle space on either side and some small kind of boxcars and stuff that they keep under the counter. But I like going into that one just because of the kind of quality of the conversation that I get from the um, people at work in the in the store. Uh, and in terms of just, I, I occasionally go in with my wife, and that's a mistake because my wife likes to have long discussions with the fellows on on topical subjects, healthcare, the military, this kind of stuff. Um, so I think the characters that I find in these stores is what brings me back. And if as as it was today. You know, we were posting some stuff to you, doing a few other errands, and my wife was um, picking up some uh, some clothes across the street. I thought, well, I'll just nip into the Hobby Town USA and see what they have. But I think it's critical to put money back into these stores, and it's critical to find the better ones. And probably even if you don't need something, you know, buy a couple of magazines or something like that. I mean, you know, give yourself some extra reading material because. Certainly what I've found in Las Vegas is that if you don't put money into the stores, they're going to go away. Ironically, just at the end of the street, there is a G-scale store, which doesn't cater to anything that is of any real interest to me, but still does a solid turnaround. They have an internet mail order business as well. Uh, I go in there sporadically, but really they have kind of garden railway, that kind of stuff. Over the, over the previous two holiday seasons, they've had they've created large um, above head layouts that have gone around, but really they don't have a lot of of interest for me. I think probably uh, the ON30 stuff is probably the only stuff that I'd really look at and, and ponder. 
Um, but as I do the downstairs layout, ON30 may be a, a scale that I consider, so I would certainly frequent them more. But the I don't know if, if you get this, particularly I, I shouldn't say anything against the uh, Garden Railway fraternity as you're about to enter this aspect of the hobby as well, but I certainly see them as a different kind of hobbyist fundamentally. And the kind of people that go into that store, it's a, it's a substantial warehouse store actually. It's um, probably three times the size of any of the stores that I've mentioned by the Hobby Town USA. It has a lot of G and, and larger gauge stock in it. But the kind of people that come through it are very different, I think, to the kind of people that are doing table layouts or shelf layouts or, you know, these kind of things. So that's a different clientele again. The people that work in, the store, in that store are very knowledgeable associated with G, but they also have all the kind of horticulture, um, you know, ground design support, I mean, they will be having conversations of anything from pine-treated logs to, you know, cementing and drainage. I mean, it's almost like a, literally a garden store in some regard, more than a train store. But these are local stores. And the, in addition to this, there are probably three stores that still maintain very small sections associated with trains, uh, some in the north part of Las Vegas. But a number of stores have closed. And I think these are the ones, particularly the veteran store in particular, I will go into and buy things and allow my wife to buy things as well, just sporadically, to make sure that that store is maintained. The one where the fellow drives the Corvette, he's got constant clientele, uh, and I don't think that one will be going out of business. And the Hobbytown USA, although I've seen other Hobbytowns close, uh, has a sufficient kind of young turnover that I don't think there'll be any problems there. But it's absolutely critical to put money into these places uh, for exactly the reasons that you've mentioned. And also, because you're right, there is probably a, a portion of the community that will go into these stores and, you know, test a few things out and then order them online, which I similarly think is... Uh, you know, not the right spirit because then the stores won't be there the next time you want to do that. Yeah, um, I, I'd have to say the stores up here, first off, there must be something with hobby shop owners and Corvettes. There must be some correlation there because uh, the one we went to today, the owner has a Corvette. Very nice, but uh, um, <laughs> I don't know, I question, I question bringing it out in the snow, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, I, the, the stores that I frequent up here probably have on the order of between uh, 200 to 400 linear feet of aisle space devoted to trains. So, um, yeah, considerably different than the ones yeah, that I'm describing. Our, our, we're, we're, we suffer an embarrassment of riches in some ways that way. Um, so, uh, that there's a lot of choice. If you were in, certainly if you were in HORN scale, you can put together a layout worth of material in a weekend with only one or two stops and probably get any of uh, certainly any of the major roads motive power right off the shelf uh, CNCP uh, Grand Trunk Sioux Line um, maybe New York Central uh, Chesapeake and Ohio if you're doing steam stuff um, New Haven um, Pennsylvania Santa Fe UP 
uh, saw some some brilliant garden scale UP stuff today uh, at uh, at Niagara Central down in the basement. Uh, they've moved everything around down there. All the American flyers moved away, and it's all uh, garden uh, garden scale in one corner. Um, but uh, yeah, you could you could walk in and and do a complete layout in in a couple of days worth of shopping, maybe less, if you were if you were focused at what you were doing. But uh, tell me about what you're going to do with the downstairs layout at your place. You talked about. HO scale or now possibly ON30. Tell me, tell me what you're doing. So the downstairs is well. Let, let me describe it. Let me set the scene, and then I'll talk about my current thinking associated with that. When we moved into this place, the fact that there was a library here was well for me anyway something that I thought was uh, you know a amazing luxury. So the the place I'm going to put the layout just to frame it in people's minds is about, I guess, 20 feet by 10 feet with bookshelves on either end, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves on either ends on the, um, on the short ends. Uh, the, the long width uh, is the space that's available for um, the, the layout. However, in addition to this, it's a kind of odd-shaped room because there are um, probably four feet in pillar-like things on all all four sides. So the way we have it currently is um, my mother sent a series of pictures, uh, framed pictures, over from Australia, and we've hung them at various areas in the uh, library. But my wife also has a curio cabinet on the entry wall which basically eliminates that from being the layout. And on the facing wall, there is a, a relatively long window at about probably three feet off the ground. So mm. it's a relatively interesting space to consider doing a shelf layout. And the way that I had, pre had done it previously was that there was a long, probably 10 feet by five foot table uh, which had a loop around track, and that was pretty well in the center. It could be moved over to the side as need be. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. The difficulty with that was just that it took up the entire room, and it had to, well, it didn't take up the entire room, but when it was out so you could walk around it, it took up a good portion of the room. And I think if you've seen the YouTube videos, you probably have a sense of the space um, in mm -hmm. some regard. I mean, it's been filmed from, from either end. So... My thinking currently is that if I can do a single shelf, single um, probably 10 to 12 foot long shelf layout, I would do a turntable on one end, well maybe maybe a foot in or a foot and a half in, then a turntable, and then just have a yard with probably some kind of maybe 1930s UK steam operation in it. And the main reason for that is the pictures and a lot of the framing of the room is very much moving in that kind of direction. Even pre-Second World War era kind of German steam, I think, might also work. But the way that I've done it so far is just 
looking around the room, standing in the room and getting a sense of what is already in the room and what would fit in in layout terms. Now, something hypermodern, neon, my wife has a lot of LED lighting things for uh, signals and what have you, and I think that would look out of place. It has an older, the room has an older look to it, and particularly if I'm, we put in, you know, a couple of reading chairs or these kind of things, I think a hypermodern layout probably wouldn't be the thing. But the other thing is that I think just visually you can do a lot in a relatively short space in that era in terms of the really small steam switching uh, locomotives, shorter boxcars, small industries that would exist along um, that kind of utility kind of industrial area and also a sense that... Um, if I wanted to do it seasonally, I could do a winter layout potentially or potentially a late fall layout and kind of capture certain elements that I wanted in the room. So I think of the room, particularly in terms of the pictures and also the kind of background interests and reading material and the, the, the layout of the library seems to lend itself to that kind of layout. The other thing that I had considered is I could take a shelf area and lead a shelf along the wall into actually a bookshelf because there are still a couple of shelves available. And the shelves are about probably 11 inches in width, go along maybe four feet on some of the shelves. So yeah. that could lend itself as well to a layout that went into a shelf. And I don't know, it, it would be a relatively small layout, but it would give me a lot of modelling opportunities and also potentially some some small switching problems. And I think the turntable and the era and these kind of things would, would fit together very well. So my thinking really out loud with regards to Aaron 30 is it would be an interesting way of getting even more kind of selective compression out of it and, and emphasizing, you know, aspects of detail, what have you. But really, it's still early days in terms of my thinking, and I have to consider the space because I'd probably need to take down at least one of these pictures and move it around. And similarly, there are a few things that I could do, like move the Kira cabinet to the wall with the window, but that, I think, would make the room seem seem out of place. So... I'm really working in relatively tight constraints down there. But the one thing I don't want to do is have a large table in the centre of the room anymore because particularly with reading chairs and these kind of things, it just it ruins the kind of ambient space. Um, so that's, I think, currently. Uh, check back with me in a couple of weeks. It may have changed completely. Uh, but certainly coming to the show this evening, I thought, well, I better really distill the thoughts. And I had been thinking about a a small turntable, that kind of steam, dirty industry period. Particularly, I've been looking back, and this, this comes from uh, Neil Salon's correspondence as well. Uh, the fellow I know in Canberra, who was an acquaintance of Neil as well, uh, has a uh, GWR, Great Western Railway, of the kind of 1930s yeah. era. Rod Wonderful Railway, yes. Yes. So I have um <laughs> I, I have clip of that on YouTube as well for folks interesting by surname Barbalay and you'll see you scroll, scroll down through my many YouTube clips 
it's on there because I filmed his layout when I was there in March last year in Australia with my brother, actually. So he features in the <laughs> YouTube clip, too. Uh, and I just like the aesthetic, and I think it would fit in well with the room. It would be a relatively easy sell to the wife, too. Um, obviously, management approval is critical with regards to these kind of things. But looking oh, at the space... Yeah. Of, sorry. When you when you speak of doing something uh, possibly in a, a British industrial scene down by the docks or something like that, um, when do you mean to do that in double O scale, four millimeter as opposed to HO? Because there's such a lot of material available, both um, rolling stock, motive power, and um, uh, buildings in four millimeter scale that would be ideal for that sort of a situation where in HO you're not going to enjoy the same sort of choice. Certainly, no. Um, I, I think I think I think uh, that's probably the way that it would go. Um, but I'm still thinking even what side of the uh, what side of the channel I do it in. Um, but yeah, I think certainly uh, four millimeter. Double uh, O would be what I'd be considering if it was a UK layout. With that, though, I, I do have some UK rail uh, magazines, but I'd need to do a lot more reading up. I think my track laying software as well caters to that. So, yes, well, this is still you... very early <laughs> in my thinking, uh, but certainly it'll, it'll be something that I'll consider. And we're planning on going to the UK uh, either, well, we're planning on going to the UK, I think, early next year. Um, so that would make the ultimate kind of plan, purchase, travel back, particularly because it's it's very difficult. I mean, as I found this morning, you can't even send stuff into Canada surface anymore. Everything's airmail. So probably the best oh, way yeah. to do this is to uh, create a shopping list, cultivate a relationship with a... Um, <laughs> a seller in the UK and then, uh, you know, make the trip over, make the purchases and then come back with it. I think you make a substantial saving in doing it that way as well. Uh, because... You should have seen my carry-on. You should have seen my carry-on <laughs> luggage when I was coming back from the UK. Yeah. Uh, Wild, Wild Swan books, uh, etched brass kits, uh, uh, good Lord, everything. It was it was amazing. I, I'm amazed I could, I could walk uh, to get on the aircraft, frankly. Gosh. But uh, it was well worth it. Yeah, it was. Uh, that's a good idea to uh, to get everything ready ahead of time and uh, just pick it up when you get there. So, well, I have an uncle in the UK as well, and he's acted as a mail drop for me in the past. So, it, it could be easy to plan these kind of things, utilising his address and the potential that it, even if a certain number of parcels arrived, they probably wouldn't take up too much space at his address. So that, that's my thinking currently. Uh, like I say, check back with me in two weeks' time. Uh, but I think certainly the space lends itself to that kind of layout. And I do enjoy, I mean, certainly my experiences with the shelf layout, uh, that space in terms of simple switching problems, these kind of things, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And the slightly larger scale, I think, would uh, lend itself to some interesting modelling opportunities. Well, the chance to detail things and, and scratch build a, um, a group of uh, unique industrial structures and, and their associated uh, support material, the fencing, the, the derricks and whatnot, um, you might even be able to incorporate some 
some waterfront into it, and that would would greatly add. Uh, there's a fellow by the name of Christopher Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, uh, who does um, some very, very good UK-style modeling, uh, and he makes portable layouts to take to various exhibitions. Uh, you'll see, you'll find his stuff online, but he do, he's done things in um, seven millimeter narrow gauge and double uh, uh, O narrow gauge. And also, if I'm not mistaken, he did a, a layout recently in one to 35, which you'll, you'll be familiar with as a military modeling scale. Certainly. And he scratched, he scratch built quite a bit of material in that and all very, very high level of uh, execution. And um, I guess he's a contemporary of Ian Rice's in terms of um, their sort of experience in the hobby and, and exposure to various methods of building things. So the valances and the lighting and uh, tormentors at the edge of the stage and whatnot, it's, it's all very good stuff. And I think that would lend itself really well to a to a sort of a museum or vignette style in a in a, sh- a bookshelf uh, in your in your sitting room so you might want to have a look at some of those for some inspiration as well certainly and in terms of your own Inspiration and ideas. We we had some deconstruction last time you were on. What what's your current thinking? <laughs> Chaos theory. Um, <laughs> uh, I sat down to try and figure out what approach I'd like to take in terms of uh, when the space is finished here and ready to receive a layout. What kind of layout am I actually going to build so that I can work towards having all of the necessary uh, kits and buildings and and rolling stock and whatnot to support the the build as soon as I'm ready to go. And I just have too many things to choose from. As I I tried to articulate in the last show, was there's just so much choice. And uh, even though I have uh, a little bit and certain scales and gauges, um, the majority of what I have right now is still in S scale standard gauge. And I, but I wasn't sure that that's what I was going to do at home because I have the modules which I've been working on um, off and on for a couple of years now, and I thought maybe I could get my my fix um, in S standard by just leaving that to the modules, which would be largely stored stored serviceable at home uh, in uh, in the utility room when I wasn't at exhibitions, but uh, and then do something else with the home layout. So I had been mucking about with an, uh, a bit of analysis. Uh, it's not analysis software. I was using Excel because I'd remembered some IT projects from years ago where we had to do a comparative analysis between various software packages with weighted values for different features uh, to see how it would fit with our uh, intended application. And I thought if I... I know it sounds a, a bit maybe anal retentive to go through this level of uh, uh, number crunching for for uh, a hobby, but I don't want to go down the wrong path if I can avoid it. So uh, essentially you lay out your your options, in my case, S standard gauge, 
SN42, which would represent uh, the Newfoundland Railway prototypes, um, seven millimeter narrow gauge for the UK industrial, and I, I actually included a, a column in the spreadsheet for HON42 uh, because I would think about doing the Newfoundland prototypes in uh, in a smaller scale if it allowed me to do to to gain certain advantages. And the last column was um, two foot gauge in S because I have a number of fornies uh, and rail buses and and uh, had done some scratch building of boxcars uh, for the main two footers. So. Um, I kind of sorted that out in columns, each choice in a column, and then uh, the factors that would affect my choice in the rows, so generating a matrix, basically. And based on my likes and dislikes, I, I hate fiddly coupling, for instance. So fiddly coupling uh, is, a, is a highly weighted uh, dislike. And in O, uh, O14 or o, o narrow gauge, uh, with the hooks and chain coupling, it's extremely fiddly. So it's it's a negative uh, in terms of of choosing that um, that scale and gauge. In S scale, it's very easy to couple up with uh, the KDs that are available. Then factors like reliability and sound installation, uh, the ability to do reliable switching, the possibility of getting going. Uh, to have a working layout faster by taking one choice versus another choice and the opportunities to scratch build or kit bash. Um, I had to weight those all together. And then I had to look at things like available details. If I want to do kit bashing or scratch building, I have to have all sorts of uh, hinges and bolts and nuts and windows and doors and and whatnot in that scale. And since I really want to do some scratch building, I, it's really important that I have details available. Not so many in SN2, not so many in, in S-scale standard gauge even, lots in 7 millimeter and lots in HO. So those weights were higher for those choices. Essentially, when I, I finished my analysis and I did the, the summing up, it still came out with S standard gauge in the lead and um, S narrow gauge 42 inch for the Newfoundland very, very close behind. And funnily enough, I look at uh, the, la the bottom two choices, uh, 014, uh, seven millimeter that is, and two foot narrow gauge, they're so far down the list in terms of the score that I, you know, it would seems to point to just selling off the stuff because I'm never going to get around to using it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's been a real eye-opener to kind of, uh, as truthfully as possible, answer the questions um, in this weighted chart and find out that, that yeah, it confirmed my suspicion that S-Standard was going to be the, the main, the leader of the pack but it was really surprising to see how badly some of the other choices scored in terms of a home layout. So uh, I think uh, in the end, I'm probably going to sell off the two-foot gauge equipment, and I'll 
probably end up, uh, I think I discussed with you the possibility of making a, a micro layout in seven millimeter just to explore a little bit of the British industrial, uh, something that could be stored in a cupboard or in the utility room. Um, but, you know, it's clearly pointing to me to go ahead with the S standard gauge mid fifties, uh, kind of an industrial scene, um, commercial industrial space in a L shape or U shape layout point to point. So enlightening eye opening, uh, don't think there's much more to be said about it. Uh, I can't, you know, fiddle the numbers and come up with a better result for something else. This is based on honest answers. So, or as honest as I can make them, I suppose. Um, but I'm, now I'm, uh, well, I mean, ahead. from from the last show, my money was on the Newfoundland narrow gauge stuff. So very very close. What what was <laughs> what what was the main things that scored standard S above that? The main things that scored standard S above that were, for instance, the the idea of getting going fast. Um, in standard gauge S, there are a number of ready to run pieces of rolling stock and, and engines that you can just pick up. It's all relative, of course. Um, there are a number you could pick up and, and employ in, a, in exactly the sort of layout I was thinking of. In the case of the, the Newfoundland narrow gauge, I would have to build a considerable number of um, prototype-specific pieces of rolling stock and a couple of engines to, to get going. So automatically there's a there's a delay um, if I want to get up and do some operations right away I'm I'm kind of stuck I have to either um, put half finished pieces on the track or simply take standard gauge bodies and swap the trucks uh, swap the trucks out for narrow gauge trucks which also have to be fabricated uh, the the negative there is that the the majority of the uh, of that sort of behavior on the island didn't occur until the mid 60s and that's after the period that I'm looking to model so I, there's another negative there it's it, it takes me out of the desired time frame uh, that I'm trying to hit um, what was the other um, there was another factor um, oh structure well structure kits are not really available for either one Cost is about the same. Um, oddly enough, you can ready-to-run track is a lot easier in the 42-inch narrow gauge because it happens to be exactly the same gauge as HO track. So if I wanted to just run trains, I can just buy HO track and throw it on, throw it on the ground, and and run trains. Uh, S-scale flex track and turnouts are a lot harder to come by, um, and commensurately more expensive. But even with even with those differences, there's only about a, a 5% difference in the score. So that those are the top two results, and everything else is significantly poorer scoring in the matrix here. So. And in terms of, you, you mentioned that you own some stuff in the other two. Do you own any S-narrow gauge stuff? Yeah, I've got uh, a couple of 40s, rail bus, and some rolling stock in two foot uh, S. Uh, I have uh, a couple of engines, 
some rolling stock that I've built and modified in the 42-inch S. I have a number of kits in the 7-millimeter narrow gauge for War Department and UK industrial prototypes. And I have a couple of engines and quite a number of cars now, actually now in standard gauge S. I don't have anything in the HO choice. However, uh, the where it scored really, really high was the number of details available and the availability of equipment, uh, cheap product that you could kit bash or cut up uh, to make specific prototypes. Now, there's, there's work involved, obviously, but you don't have to sit and build an entire car from, from raw material. You can take a, a 36-foot uh, Fowler or Dominion patent boxcar outside brace cut the ends off, put metal ends in, um, change the trucks out by cutting the bolster width down and putting new doors on the sides. And that's a lot quicker than building a car from scratch, especially if you need 10 or 12 of them or 15 of them for, for your uh, uh, planned space. But that said, to get the engines running in that scale... In HO scale, I would have to narrow the drive mechanisms or uh, buy TT mechanisms and drop them or fit them underneath HO bodies. It's uh, convoluted when you're starting to mix and match, and especially with the unusual prototypes like with 42-inch gauge was popular anywhere where the British had colonial railways. So you'll see it in South Africa. You'll see it in um, Canada. They had a number both on the coast and in, inland. Uh, Western Australia, New Zealand. And there's some great material out there to to model if you're, if you're doing it. But it's a bit difficult if you don't have access to someone who either makes kits or makes uh, modified mechanisms to to um, to bash into your desired prototype. Interesting, interesting. So in terms of your in terms of your sectional layout that you you take to shows, how much equipment do you actually have on for operating on that? Oh, uh, for the whole crew, this the eight of us. No, no. You in particular? Do you do you own stuff to? I mean, do you own locomotives already? And uh, do you have yeah, a? I've got a um, right now. I, I have a ready to run um, SW nine uh, from S Helper Service that I've added a sound decoder to diesel sound decoder um, as my my primary motive power right now, I've got a kit for a GP9 um, locomotive, which will become a branch line style uh, Jeep with uh, smaller smaller fuel tank and uh, flexi-coil trucks, which I'm getting side frames from somebody else to do that modification. I lucked out and got a kit for a Canadian National 260 steam engine uh, etched brass kit, which are rarer than hen's teeth. Um, the devil's got all these IOUs from me for all the deals I've been cutting to try and get uh, some of this rarer stuff. 
There's also an NW an NW2 kit, I believe, from a company in um, New Zealand, uh, Railmaster Exports. And I think that's it for motive power. Right now, the only thing that's running is the SW9. And uh, that will get converted to an SW1200 road switcher with number boards and uh, flexicoil trucks and a number of other changes. One of the nice things, even a small engine in S-scale, there's lots of room inside for decoders, uh, lighting effects, uh, speaker system. Uh, still got lots of room for weight to, uh, to give you good traction. And the diesels especially, you've got at least eight-wheel pickup, right? So um, all of those things count in favor for, uh, for a diesel operation anyway. Gosh. Okay. So the plan is the plan is in place. In terms of the layout space, have you sought management approval for a particular size? What's your thinking currently? Well, um, right now my my estimate of the finished space that I will have available will be uh, a square about I think it was I think it said eighteen by twelve or twenty by twelve. Um, I could get an L shape into that space, possibly a U shape, uh, slightly shorter because of a staircase on the one leg. Uh, there would be a staircase that I wouldn't want to foul. And possibly some staging off of one end of that through into the utility room. And if I didn't. Well, I can't obviously mock up a, a mainline operation in that space, so it's going to have to be a, a branch line or industrial park, or um, a pier. Possibly, I think I might be able to get a rural, a rural scene. There was a suggestion that I look at the railways of Prince Edward Island, uh, which were in operation until the 80s in Canada, and they had some, um, they had some really nice. Uh, GE 70 tonners that were their their primary power, and uh, they served a number of of industries on a very small island, and uh, but standard gauge, so it would fit my my time frame basically, because uh, earlier they had some steam engines that I could possibly bash or build, but again that kind of kills the getting started quickly factor, so. Lots to think about still in how to execute once I get the space finished. Um, I had the the coldest day, the coldest morning of the year was this morning. It was minus 25 outside Celsius, so it really felt it inside. So it makes it more imperative that the space gets finished, and uh, so that it's comfortable for for myself and my wife and the cats and. Uh, then I can get serious about building the, the framework. And again, I want to make it such that I'm not uh, excluding everything else from that space. I need to, to make room for storage and uh, uh, books, uh, seasonal items, um, tools, whatnot, underneath the layout. So it's going, to be, it's going to be a lot of fun building it. That's all I can say right now. And uh, now that I'm... I'm fairly certain of the direction that I'm going to take in terms of the era, the scale, the gauge, and everything else. 
I can focus on that and get rid of things that are distracting or not necessary or unlikely ever to be touched, turn that back into some ready cash to, to make the layout even better when it is built, maybe even splurge on a, on a kit or two, a craftsman kit or two that I've got my, my eye on, but uh, insufficient funds at the moment to, uh, to indulge. Very good, very good. Well, I look forward to uh, getting two weekly updates in your uh, in your process along because I think uh, there's certainly a number of interesting twists and turns that are coming up that I don't necessarily want to question you on heavily currently. regards to the last show on turnouts, I'm, I'm sure you've had a chance to listen to it. What was your sense with regards to uh, Ben and my discussion, and do you have any more points to add with regards to turnouts? It was uh, it was great that Ben was able to call in, and uh, I mean, for for a young guy, he shows a tremendous enthusiasm for the hobby that I don't see in a lot of other people his age. I think I know maybe one fellow that would be about that age in this area that's even close to uh, as keen on the, on the whole idea of spending time with, with the scale models. And uh, Ben's been working with the, uh, the fast tracks turnouts, uh, turnout jigs, and he's trying to put together a, a port, um, a port scene layout in, in HO and I got to applaud him because the era he's trying to do doesn't have a lot of ready to run equipment for it but uh, he's game to go ahead and do it himself and build in the heavy grades and whatnot to uh, to squeeze all of the, the uh, features in that he wants as far as turnouts go in general um, I think the the coverage was was good last uh, last show but I just have to echo that the turnouts are going to be the worst, the worst, most troublesome, most, most aggressive factor in, in reducing the reliability of your, your train operations on any layout. So uh, if the prototype could get away with it, if they could have no turnouts, they would do it with no turnouts because it would almost eliminate their, their maintenance, frankly. Um, that's where they have the most amount of uh, effort applied is to keep the turnouts running uh, four seasons and uh, under all conditions of, uh, of uh, traffic. So if you have to sacrifice possibly a little bit of visual realism in the turnout, for instance, if you decide you're going to go with uh, Pico uh, code 100 turnouts in your HO layout rather than Central Valley kits with all the lovely castings and, and details that make them so wonderful to look at uh, in order to guarantee that you'll have two fewer derailments every hour, then I'd recommend going with the Pico turnouts because there's nothing like, nothing spoils a a day of operation or an evening of operation than, than constantly trying to put the cars back on the rails at a turnout or, or a crossing. And it's, it's made more uh, poignant when 
you you're having to put a highly detailed scratch built car that's very carefully weathered back on the rails with your greasy uh, potato chip encrusted fingers um, as it comes off the rails. It's uh, even when I go for op sessions at other people's places, the the one thing that stands out in your mind is um, when the first of all when the control system doesn't work, you you turn the throttle up or you turn the direction and the engine doesn't respond properly, but the other factor that's probably the easiest one to, to call into question is the reliability of operation. Did it come off? Are we having a lot of derailments? And especially when you're switching, if you if you want to do switching, the turnouts have got to be bulletproof. Otherwise, you're going to have no fun really quickly. I know you talked to Ben about the caboose industries, his experience with the caboose industries ground throws. In, I, I know that I told you earlier that I can't recommend them uh, personally to be to clarify that or to expand on that most of the problems that we were having with the caboose industries turnouts was the uh, add-on portion which allowed you to switch the frog polarity sort of a micro switch arrangement that got added on underneath the caboose industries uh, throw um, in in HO scale and in, well, in S and O scale, you could certainly use one of those ground throws and it would look like the type that was used in trolleys and trams, um, street trackage or industrial areas. They have sort of these uh, weighted throw arms that you can kick from one position to the other. And that's the closest prototype sort of switch mechanism I can think of that the Caboose Industries uh, arm looks like. But other than that, in HO, they're still a bit big. They're nice uh, from in from the standpoint that if you don't want to run to the cost of a Pico turnout, you can get an Atlas or um, uh, Walther's turnout, which I guess is the Shinohara, uh, which don't have locking mechanisms on them and you can turn them into locking turnouts without going to the expense of buying a tortoise switch machine or a switchmaster motor or something and and uh, installing that under your roadbed, which can be a problem where you're speaking of uh, doing something maybe in the, in the bookshelf. You don't want to be cutting holes in the bookshelf proper. You might want to just put something that slides in on top of the shelf and is self-contained and doesn't have any... Um, protrusions through the bottom. I don't know, uh, something to think about for during your planning. Certainly. I think. Certainly. Um, but yeah, uh, the turnouts, the turnouts are going to be the most, the most source of problems. So you have to spend the most amount of time looking after them and, uh, and doing the installations initially. Um, I've had, a lot of trouble trying to come up with a good way to install turnouts when you're using foam subroadbed or foam decking. You really need to put something solid underneath the turnout so that you can uh, pin it, engage, and straight. Um, some of the commercially available turnouts I've seen are deformed uh, due to the casting of the plastic 
the plastic ties around all of the castings and um, uh, rail sections, uh, which in some cases are cut away to receive the, the point rails when they move from side to side. So uh, as the plastic cools, it tends to pull differentially on the various parts. I've found uh, numerous commercial turnouts out of the package that are out of gauge, uh, tight gauge, um, uh, insufficient clearance at guardrails or too much clearance at guardrails because they're kind of molded into the plastic ties. You can fix them with judicious application of soldering guns or broad-tipped uh, high-wattage soldering irons where you soften the plastic sufficiently to move things back into proper alignment. But it's dodgy, it's touchy, and it's easy to it's very easy to melt things way too much, and then you have uh, junk essentially. But uh, if you pin a turnout, a commercial turnout, just at the ends of the, at the point end and the frog end, and don't do anything in the middle, you'll find that it tends to bow up and float, or bow to the side, uh, due to the, the stresses in the plastic. And you'll want to add extra track pins by drilling and drilling through the ties and, and pinning it in more locations. And you can't, you can't pin it on a, um, on a piece of foam. There's nothing to pin into. And you can't use the typical, um, what do you call it, the, the uh, foam uh, topper tape for uh, uh, pickup truck caps uh, that some people have used, which is similar to the Woodland Scenics uh, black foam roll roadbed. Uh, because that there's nothing to pin in there. If the turnout is not perfectly formed, you can't you can't push it back into alignment and hold it there because the adhesive on the tape is not sufficiently strong to uh, to keep it in place once you've uh, once you've uh, pushed it there with your fingers. And the other method that's been popular lately is to use the um, uh, adhesive caulk and spread a thin strip of it uh, along your, your roadbed alignment and then press your turnouts uh, and tie um, flex track and everything into the, uh, into the caulk and use uh, dressmaker's pins or fabric pins with a kind of a T-shaped head. They look like the ones used for uh, insect specimens and things like that too. They're quite long and they'll, They'll hold things roughly in place in the foam while everything sets up, but it still doesn't provide enough strength to, to take a turnout that's slightly curved or slightly bowed and, and hold it down. It really needs to be solidly placed uh, to ensure the, the best reliability for the long run. That's about all I can think of at the moment. Gosh. turnout. Well, for folks listening in that are yet to even lay their first piece of track, we probably should say that these are these are horror stories rather than possibly every case of uh, you know out of the box turnout. So, I mean, I think what you're describing here is um, extreme case scenarios, but also for people that are doing lots of heavy operation, not just creating your first shelf layout. So. Don't feel as you purchase the turnout uh, for the first time that you're throwing your money away with the potential that you'll have to do all these kind of 
surgical operations. But I mean, the, the, this is a distinction that I wanted to make when, when chatting with Ben as well, that the kind of operations that you're talking about, you know, the uh, chip-encrusted hand, what have you, it relates to relatively large layouts by most uh, starting hobbyists' perspective, and also something that has a lot of traffic uh, along the, the various parts, as opposed to one's first layout with just getting off the off the shelf parts. So that's the only caveat I'd say with regards to that wisdom, Chris. But I think you've you've given a lot of food for thought. The other topic that we were going to discuss when uh, when Ben was on was foam, and this is something that I've through my model railroading experiences, have always been told to avoid um, through various horror stories, similar to your turnout horror stories, actually, <laughs> in some regard. But um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that that yeah, you're right. It, it's not every turnout does this. There's there's some manufacturers that that have excellent quality control, and and pretty much every turnout that you pick up is is dead nut straight, and it's it's good to use right out of the box, but to be aware of it, um, I know guys that that they don't check the gauge on the flex track. They don't check the 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 guardrail position or the gauge on the turnouts. They don't check the uh, back to back or the wheel gauge on their ready to run cars, and they wonder when they ha- why they have operational problems. And you'll you'll pick up a car and find that that one of the axles is out of gauge or the the wheels are canted in the in the plastic uh, truck frames or something so be aware that that there's a lot of good stuff manufactured out there but it doesn't excuse you from checking to make sure it's it's to the standard accepted standards beforehand you're you're absolutely right uh i do tend to to highlight the horror stories cuz frankly they're they're more fun to talk about, but um, yeah, you can you can certainly go ahead and and pick up with confidence uh, the Atlas product or Shinohara product or Pico product, and 99 times out of 100 you'll have very few problems. But if you've only if you've got a small layout where you only have two or three turnouts and your cars are always derailing, it's it's still no fun anymore, right? Like, Certainly. Certainly. But another point yeah. that you make, which which I think is critical, I made when Ben was on, is that running a variety of different cars and a variety of different trains, running at different speeds, running over a layout will help you firstly iron out when it's a turnouts or when it's particular cars or these kind of things. And this all fits together into a kind of broader holism, which means if you're having problems on your layout, there are still techniques to work out whether it's specifically the turnouts specifically the cars, specifically flex track out of gauge. And I think that's important information to consider as well, that these yep. things, are, are they, they work together in a kind of continuous system and being able to isolate and identify what's going on, and this goes to wiring, this goes to basically every aspect of the hobby, is uh, a, a way of uh, you know, circumventing the problems relatively quickly, isolating them and, and fixing them accordingly. So um, it's not necessarily just turnouts all the time. There are a wide variety of other things that can cause these kind of uh, layout problems. I mean, even the the tightness of curves and other things that I discussed with Ben, I think, could potentially cause these kind of problems too.
I didn't have a chance to talk about was foam on the last foam. model rail radio show. What's your own experience with foam? And um, not necessarily all the horror stories, but what are the general ground rules with regards to using foam? I, I love foam uh, and I hate foam. Uh, it's, it's good and bad. And the reasons uh, for both conditions can be the same reason. And I'll try to, uh, I'll try to explain how I mean. Uh, I love foam because it's lightweight and easy to cut and easy to carve into different shapes and uh, form contours. And they're more rigid than, say, uh, traditional uh, web, cardboard web and, and wet paper towel with plaster cloth in it. Um, and more useful, certainly, if you're going to plant trees or buildings, if you're doing that in a plaster cloth, it's only um, a fraction of an inch thick whereas the foam can be several inches thick uh, in, in any one place. But when I talk about trying to put in um, a mechanism for turning a turnout, and I have to put the control rod through two inches of foam to get up to the turnout from the, from the tortoise or the switchmaster, it's a pain because you've got to do extra work for it. You either have to carve out the entirety of the foam underneath the turnout throw bar and fit it virtually directly underneath the, uh, the turnout, or you have to come up with a, a linkage or a tube and a piano wire or some sort of push-pull mechanism. It's extra work in every case to, uh, to get that throw the extra couple of inches to get, to get through the, the roadbed base you've made. And when I'm putting down the track, uh, since I like to, to do a lot of hand laying, the, the, the foam doesn't take spikes. If you have uh, ties on top of the foam and you're trying to spike into them, the, uh, the tie will actually cut right into the foam as you're trying to spike and it'll push the tie down into the foam sometimes. Uh, it's not very strong in, uh, in compression for point loads, it's great if you have a you put your hand on it and try to push down. It's your hand won't go into it, but you can still dent it as you make smaller and smaller down to your thumb or your fingertip or um, uh, spiking pliers or the thickness of a tie. So you have to come up with other ways. You might have to put a strip of homosote on top or a strip of uh, door skin on top to to give you a solid base underneath your, your track to work with. Uh, some people, I haven't had any experience with this myself, but some people have experienced um, issues with uh, heat and fire, and foam is it's a plastic, and when you burn it, it does things that plastic do, like give off gas, and, and uh, sometimes it can, it can burn very quickly. And you've got, you know, that's flammable material and your wood bench work is flammable and all these other things. Most people, it's not really an issue, um, except that I, I mention it because there are those who like to use heat and chemicals to carve the foam instead of um, uh, knives and, and uh, files. So they'll use uh, soldering irons or the hot wire foam cutters. Uh, or I've actually seen people use toluene or, or other chemicals to, to uh, 
etch the foam into different uh, different deformations, then, then you can get more organic forms than you can get with a knife. Uh, let's see, what else can you, do you have to worry about with foam? If you're running trains on it, and for instance, you've got um, older uh, Athern or Riverossi or some of the other early manufacturers of engines, the gear towers themselves used to make a lot of noise. And if you've got this light, rigid foam board uh, as your decking without supports underneath it, if you've just got it kind of spanning front to back on your shelf, it'll act like the top of a guitar uh, or a violin. And the vibrations that you generate with the, the engine noise are greatly amplified, so you get a really um, distorted sound, un- unrealistic sound coming from your locomotives. Um, so you want to be able to, to, to hold the foam rigidly in place so that it cannot vibrate. So I'll use a ladder frame or, or an egg crate or something underneath it and, and either glue, glue the foam down on, onto the surface and make sure that it's, it can't bounce or vibrate. Or uh, if you're working on flat plywood with the foam on top to give you some contouring depth, then uh, use a uh, construction adhesive or something spread, spread over it so that it holds the foam and doesn't let it float or bounce to keep the noise down. Uh, oh, if you're going to use the hot wire cutter to cut it, remember the hot wire cutter does not cut through construction adhesive. So if you're, if you're joining layers of foam together to make uh, tall hills and things like that, and then you're going to use the hot wire foam cutter to, to come along and give you a contour, it'll cut through the foam fine, but it won't cut through the construction adhesive. Ask me how I know that. <laughs> hmm. I broke a few nichrome wires doing that. So, but yeah, there's, there's, it's a wonderful product, and it's really taken the hobby by storm. But this is not the original application for it, so the shortcomings of it are things I guess we're still finding out as we as we do things, uh, try new things with it. Uh, I have had with the modules some small amounts of shrinkage in the foam. Uh, at, it's noticeable at the at the joints between the module sections. Uh, whereas when I when I installed it and put it put it on the uh, pine framing and uh, plywood framing, everything was right up to the end and square off the end down to the front of the framing and all that. And after a couple of years, I'm seeing that there seems to be a creep inwards from the ends of the the layout and small gaps appearing just behind the fascia. So. The only thing I can think of is that the foam itself is is somehow uh, shrinking slightly. It's it's a closed cell system, so that there was atmospheric pressure trapped inside all the little bubbles through the foam, and it's possible that over time those have uh, shrunk or as they've hardened even more or aged, they've, they've shrunk slightly. Not a big deal in a, in a house. Um, it's not a real, real worry, but 
when you see a 16th inch gap open up uh, between two modules and all of your ballast and and uh, ground foam starts to to gap like the San Andreas fault, you really uh, it's it's not pleasant to look at. So then you have to keep patching that at every show. Every time you put it together and take it apart, you have to disguise these these crevices. So. But uh, other than that, yeah, I love working with it. Uh, a sure-form tool or an uh, uh, electric carving knife or uh, a rasp does a great job of, of making really nice organic contours. But be prepared to have those little bits of pink or blue foam everywhere because it generates a tremendous static charge and it sticks to everything, um, including cat's paws. So... Yeah, well, nothing is cat-proof. Certainly. That's, that's one thing I've learned is you can't cat-proof anything. Certainly. Um, and they're intelligent creatures as well, which means that once they discover even the slightest way in, then it's basically, you know, it, it all goes downhill from there. It's interesting with regards to your discussion of foam because I thought previously I had no foam experience, but now I'm reminding myself of wargaming scenery, for example, that I own. And that's... Um, that shrinkage is a, a very real phenomena. I think particularly if people are layering foam uh, and the, the, the shrinkage associated with the glue, I, I can just imagine a series of, of problems. I guess if it, was all in, if it was all in the same house, you would just have the thermal expansion and contraction. My original attribution was that uh, it, it has... Um, uh, hydro properties as well in terms of its absorption of humidity and things like that. But you're describing quite substantial gapping in, what, six-foot sectional layouts? Is that the kind of area where you've seen the gapping? Yeah, probably between the four and six foot. But I'm, if you lose a 32nd on each piece, then every time you have a joint, you lose a 16th. And that starts to become really visible, especially if you've got uh, like a, just a lawn area or a, a roadway or something. Um, a sixteenth of an inch gap is, is huge. Oh, a thirty-second of an inch gap is huge. It's, it's, it's a big mm-hmm. gouge right down the middle of your, your scenic element. So there, there's people that, that argue this with me, but I can't disagree with what I'm seeing. Uh, I may be attributing it to the wrong thing, but I don't think so. Um, I am seeing some some foam that I bought at the same time I built the the layout, uh, which has been stored in uh, in offsite storage for a couple of years now, just as a because I'm going to use it at some point. Didn't want to chuck it out. Um, I've noticed that it has experienced some sort of odd degradation around the edges, um, like kind of powdering at the edges and uh, getting uh, getting brittle so I'm wondering if that's if that's just another uh, symptom of the problem could be could be a bad batch I bought I don't know but uh, it's not a it's not a showstopper if you're building a home layout and there's you you can control or the the humidity and temperature are fairly stable and you're not going in and out of minus 20 to to plus 20 
degree swings, uh, especially the shows in the winter. But uh, and you're not banging it about every time you take it apart and put it together either. You, you don't do that with the home layout. It's once it's together, it's, it's pretty much left alone. So it's a great, great material. Are there other ways to do it? Yes. Um, on Trevor's most recent layout, we did the ground, uh, the ground contours outside of the roadbed were all done with, with, uh, extruded foam and but the roadbed itself was made with homosote so a thick layer of homosote a spline actually uh, four strips of homosote ripped inch and a half wide were laid on edge and run in a spline along the alignment of the roadbed including where it diverged at uh, uh, at turnouts so that whole section is, is absolutely rock solid, as rock solid as, as homosote can be. It does have some hydroscopic properties, which are not eliminated, but certainly mitigated if you seal it with paint before you start putting on uh, glue and, uh, and scenic material and wetted ballast and whatnot. So, but yeah, doing the, the ground contours can't beat the ground fo- or the extruded foam. It's, uh, it's terrific to make uh, solid, solid uh, bases for rivers and your hillsides and someplace to insert your trees and telephone poles and bases for all of your structures. But uh, just keeping in mind that you, you may experience some problems at gaps uh, if you don't adequately protect the, uh, the joint uh, for for handling, certainly. Um, and I, I still have the suspicion, very strong suspicion, that that it's uh, shrinking slightly. Not much per slab, but since they butt together, it, it makes it more visible. With regards to the various qualities of foam, I mean, this is something that I've noted with regards to wargaming scenery, my own experience of foam, but there seem to be different qualities of foam, and you mentioned a bad batch. When you go and purchase foam, is there any way that you can assess you know, the quality of the foam, and particularly with regards to this notion of shrinkage? Is this something which you can get a different class of foam or a different kind of foam in order to mitigate? You know, I, I don't think so. Um, in terms of the foam that is available, and, and I, I understand that it's not available everywhere, the extruded blue and uh, pink foam boards, the, the styrofoam SM boards that we talk about, I've heard that they're not available everywhere in North America and some places much harder to get than others. Uh, and there's the white beadboard, which is, um, I guess, a lot of people are used to from, from uh, uh, earlier days. Uh, it was tried in, in modeling, but it's, it crumbles uh, because it's just it's beads of uh, semi-solid uh, foam that are mushed together in a large slab uh, at some point, and they they kind of lose their their solidity when you start breaking it up. You get all these little um, what uh, seed pod sized little bits of uh, foam everywhere, and uh, it, it has a very distinct texture. When you start breaking it up, it's hard to to make a smooth surface out of it. It's uh, 
so it, it shows through the scenery that you're applying over top unless you start to cover it in plaster and then kind of defeats the purpose, right? Um, I don't think there's any way to judge by looking at the boards themselves when they're in the DIY centers to uh, say whether it's a good one or a bad one. Uh, I'm not 100% certain that, that what I'm seeing is wholly related to the the board itself, it could be some factor with the the wood in my substructure. Um, although that's at first, I, I can't I can't see it right now, but I'm I'm not willing to dismiss the possibility that it could be the wood as well. But the best thing you can do is if you're going to if you're going to build up scenic contours with this material is to do overlapping sheets. Don't buy a single two-inch thick uh, block of the foam. I think you'd probably be better off using uh, the half-inch thick slabs and then kind of staggering the joints uh, as you go up, uh, like lapping, lapping the joints with thinner sheets. And hopefully that will lock things together a little better. And there's water-based contact cements now that uh, I understand are quite good for doing uh, for gluing up sheets like that. But again, keeping in mind your hot wire foam cutter won't cut through adhesive. Plan your landforms a little bit before you you go ahead and start gluing up uh, three inches of the stuff, and then find that you can't cut it easily. But uh, I think you're at the mercy of the manufacturer, really, in this case. Um, if you find one that works, you keep using it. Uh, the, the the pink stuff works better for you, then use that. If the blue stuff works better, then, then stick with it. And in terms of regions, I mean, my understanding is that there's a certain path, there's a certain kind of phone that's used maybe east of the Mississippi and another kind that's used west of the Mississippi. And in terms of the kind of sh shrinkage and these kind of things, is it worth considering, particularly if you're doing a large uh, layout, to let the foam rest in your in your house for a period of time before you started putting it down? And in terms of water-based substances, I mean, assuming that my logic is correct with regards to the uh, hydroscopic or at least hydro-changing uh, properties of commercial foam, is it worth leaving the foam at rest for a period of time? What's your thinking with regards to these kind of possibilities? I don't think anybody's done any definitive tests on it. Um, if we're if we have to get into long-term uh, seasoning of of the foam before we use it, like someone would season lumber before they do a cabinet project, uh, I think we're we might be. <laughs> better serve to find something else to use. It, it, uh, uh, the reason I suggest the, the water-based uh, uh, adhesives to, uh, to use on the foam is because if you were to use a traditional contact cement with a solvent base in it, as soon as you put it on the foam, it would probably eat it and uh, generate some nasty uh, fumes or you know other, other byproducts that you wouldn't want to deal with. But uh, Gee, if it's yeah, if it's hydroscopic, it's going to soak up some of the moisture there, and that might cause a differential problem over time. And it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I think we've covered we've covered foam probably to the to the right level. <laughs>
probably a good point to start talking about grades a little bit as well. I mean, we've talked about grades in some of the earlier shows, particularly with regards to your father's shelf layout, but would you like to talk a little bit about grades with regards to foam? Well, it doesn't bend. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, it snaps. If you, if you do a gentle enough uh, vertical curve, if you do your transition... And this might be a good way to, to think of it. If you do a very, very gentle transition from the, from the flat into your grade and then back from the grade to a flat again at the top, and it's gentle enough to, to not break the foam, it's probably a good one for your engines. Um, there's more than one case I've run into where the transition between flat and grade has been so abrupt that the pilot on the locomotive actually shorts out against the rails or lifts the the pilot wheel, uh, pilot wheel off the uh, track um, because the ramp is, is too steep. Um, not so much of a problem at the top of the hill, but then you'll get something like an un- uncoupling between, say, a long car uh, still on the flat and a short car going down the hill. The couplers can actually disengage from one another uh, vertically. Grades, uh, Woodland Scenics makes an interesting product called uh, Flexible Grades or some such. It's it's a uh, very fine-grained white beadboard that's done. It's uh, done like an accordion. It's curved and it bends very easily, follows contours, and it's a fixed, fixed grade of, uh, I think, 2%. And uh, it's available in a box where you can uh, you can start the grade and and do a, lay down a four foot section and then take another four foot section that starts at that height and and carries on to the next one. It's actually quite nice to work with. Uh, Dad and I are using it on his little uh, Welsh narrow gauge inspired uh, portable layout that he's taking to a couple of shows. And we wanted to incorporate a grade, and this seemed to be the easiest way to do it. And we topped that with a cork roadbed, and then uh, I glued on some wooden ties, and we spiked rail down on top of that. So it, it came out quite well. But we did use Pico turnouts, ready-made Pico turnouts for that uh, because of the reliability issues. We wanted to, to kind of prevent any, any sort of faults and failures there. Um, but... By and large, grades are, if you, if you deal carefully with the transitions between the grade itself and the horizontals, then not a lot of problem um, until you get to the limit of the adhesion that your engine has. And up until then, you're fine. After that, you'll have to throw another engine on the job or uh, deal with maybe traction tires on the engine uh, in end scale. I know that was a popular thing is to put uh, a rubber tire on uh, one of the one or more of the drive wheels to uh, to give it a little extra grip because the weight's just not there. Certainly, certainly. So, sorry, I'm I'm getting a bit of an echo. Um, so the general rule of thumb with regards to grades is slowly but surely very small percentage grades wherever possible unless you can put uh, additional additional traction on the uh, particular locomotives but also with regards to realism you there are no real shortcuts you were 
extraordinarily lucky with regards to a father's shelf layout that the chaise, for example, would be able to handle 4% without slippage. But realistically, in a, a small shelf layout, you should assume probably only 2.5% at most in terms of grades. Um, I, I've heard of other layouts with multiple engines on kind of longer stretches where they can get up to uh, 4% um, without breaking a sweat. But the, the use of helper engines and these kind of things lend themselves to those kind of grades. In terms of the real world, train grades are typically no greater than 2% in most circumstances, aren't they, Chris? Well, in the prototype, if they can avoid a grade at all, they'll, they'll go to great lengths to not have a grade or to, to make the grade easier. For instance, they'll follow, the, they'll follow a river course and put curves in rather than try and go up and over something, especially if there's a lot of tonnage involved because you're, uh, you're going to have to set up helper districts to get the tonnage over the, over the peaks um, and that's extra crews and extra uh, facilities, extra fuel, uh, and if you can avoid it, it's it's in your best interest economically as the as the real uh, railroad would be uh, concerned with it. But in a model, if you're doing uh, a mining line or a lumber line or um, uh, like a logging operation, uh, slate quarries, they had punishing grades in a lot of them. Uh, the Uintah Railway had a 7% grade on its main line, and they had the uh, 2662 locomotives that ended up on the Sumter Valley and then ended up in South America somewhere, but they were uh, articulated locomotives with uh, side tanks on them so that the water could add extra weight to the uh, to the uh, wheels for traction, and they had hideously tight curves too, hairpin curves, where you could see that the, you could look out the window of the engine and see the caboose uh, on the other side of the curve. Um, but that was a real life situation. In the model, we tend to exaggerate things. We uh, caricature the the grades to make it more impressive or more uh, dynamic to increase the, the play value, I guess, is, is part of it because you can throw a, a helper engine on and have uh, two steamers uh, pounding up the hill with a bunch of coal cars instead of, instead of one slowly dragging along the, uh, the water course. But you can simulate grades scenically by putting in uh, cuts and fills uh, along the main line or adding uh, uh, just uh, the bridges and, and rivers and valleys to give it a sense of, of rising from a, a low level and climbing up. As long as you can't see two, two scenes that are uh, that would jar your sense of uh, the elevation change at the same time, you can achieve a lot that way and basically leave it flat uh, from, a, from a building standpoint, which makes it awfully easy uh, to build. 
if you're not worried about uh, actually incorporating the grades. Uh, so when you say cuts and fills specifically, you're referring to uh, selectively compressing various scenes, or I mean, uh, what's the term cuts and fills used in in this context mean? Um, from a from a railway engineering standpoint, if you're going to to go across a a stretch of ground, you want to keep it as flat as possible. So if there's a a small a small hill in front of you. Uh, you'll go take some dynamite or a, or a steam shovel and, and cut a path through the hill um, and uh, to, in order to keep the, the track flat through that area. Uh, and um, when you come to a, a small depression or a, 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 uh, a bank, an embankment where you need to, to build up something rather than letting the train the track drop down, you fill in the area of the embankment, create a, essentially a new slope. And uh, engineers try to balance the amount that they take away from cuts with the amount they need from fills so that they don't have to dispose of excess material or bring excess material in. Um, it's a bit of a civil engineering exercise, really. But it looks great in a in a model when you have uh, a a train sh uh, disappearing into a hillside and coming out the other the other side of it where you don't have where your prototype may not have any tunnels. Um, part of model railways uh, the idea of spaces that are different from one another and scenes that are different from one another. If you don't have these visual foils like underpasses or tunnels or um, canyons or something to to break up the scenes in the model, you have to rely on more subtle uh, view blocks like groves of trees or or cuts or hillsides um, where where it can disappear momentarily and then as you orient yourself in the new position where you plug in your throttle or whatnot. It seems like you're in a different area. Um, it's just another visual trick in the scenery aspect to to try and make it seem like it's longer than it is. Fascinating, fascinating. Yes. Now, as soon as you described it, I immediately understood uh, what you were talking about. It's one of those things where, when you're thinking of a layout from kind of top down versus actually on on the layout level. I guess those uh, those descriptions are, are better served. So, I guess we've discovered we've we've discussed some of the aspects associated with uh, with grades for someone starting out, maybe buying some foam, a hot wire cutter, these kind of things. Are there any other basic rules of thumb that we haven't covered associated with uh, foam and grades? I don't think so, Tom. But I I think from a beginner standpoint. Uh, if I was starting out and I didn't have any experience in the hobby right now, I, I think I'd be I'd be confused and I wouldn't know exactly where to turn. Um, the the only thing I can say I was thinking about this today uh, a little bit during our uh, luncheon. I said if you're starting out today, you just have to go and try things. You have to go and see what it is you like and dislike and and what turns your crank and what turns you off 
Um, you might decide that you don't like uh, switching operations, so there's no sense in investing in dozens of turnouts. You may just want to create a nice realistic scene to run your collection of equipment through and doesn't require any turnouts at all, which would be wonderful from a reliability standpoint. Um, but you're never going to, well, we talked about it last week, or sorry, not last week, but last show. Um, you're never going to get it right the first time. So be prepared to make mistakes in, in building things. Uh, you're going to break pieces of track. You're going to break turnouts. Uh, you're going to figure out how to fix both of those things. You're going to uh, have derailments, and you'll sort out the reasons for those. But you won't be able to do that by reading the latest issue of Model Railroad Planning or the latest Gazette. Uh, you'll only do it by, by grabbing a few pieces of track and some spikes and... Uh, Nailing it down on just a, a, a hollow core door uh, is a cheap way to get started. There's lots of um, recovery places, what the Habitat for Humanity or the Restore, where you can get uh, recovered building materials from. Uh, you can experiment very cheaply in, in a lot of cases. You can experiment with brass track if you like uh, to start off with. Yeah, the corrosive or the corrosion on the brass track isn't, isn't the conductor, but clean it off. You can usually get it cheap at a flea market or, or um, a train show, and it'll give you something to play with and determine where you're going, what you want to do, and what interests you in the hobby. You may just decide that you never want to hand lay a piece of track, um, but you won't figure that out until you've hand laid at least one length of it and maybe a turnout or two. And uh, that's actually a fairly cheap way to experiment as well. Uh, the rail itself doesn't cost very much. The spike bag of spikes isn't very much. You get pretty good value for your money in terms of material. And uh, again, uh, pick up a car, uh, a piece of rolling stock, uh, change the, the couplers out from the X2F style to a set of KDs or McHenry's or something. Uh, change the wheel sets out to metal wheel sets, see the improvement in the rolling qualities and switching qualities. Heck, today I saw a whole tray of HO cars. Uh, they were $2.98 each ready to run uh, from an estate sale and a slightly better set, uh, another tray, probably 20, 30 cars, they were $3.98 each. You could get a whole train for less than $100 um, two trains for less than $100 probably and could have spent the entire day switching quite happily. Um, gradually improve your skill set. Um, I wouldn't worry uh, right away about designing a, a layout that had foam and mountains and bridges and trestles and all this good stuff. Don't, don't worry about that on day one. Get a sense of the materials you're working with uh, from the rolling stock and motive power and maybe the controls and see how you make out with either a basic DCC system or a, uh, maybe a momentum DC throttle like the, the MRC Tech 4. Uh, see what, what you're comfortable with. Then go and visit a club, go and visit two clubs, 
get a layout tour, uh, maybe go to an operating session somewhere, and uh, certainly if you can find some old magazines uh, at uh, flea markets or shows, the library, see what's in there, uh, older layouts you could see you could see a plan in there and you'd say this is what i have to have it's got everything i want it's got a pier and a warehouse and a cold storage facility and a roundhouse and a turntable that's exactly what i want and uh then go out and grab your foam or ceiling tile or a home assault and start cutting and fitting there's the one thing that's really changed the last couple of years is the ability for people to self-publish uh, high-quality video instructions. Uh, the DVDs that are out now uh, completely swamp what was available on VHS uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and there's tremendous amount of material on doing scenery and track work and, and detailing and weathering and all that, and they're reasonably priced. And it's like having an expert come into your own home uh, and to give you personal tuition on these uh, these topics, uh, certainly they're a good investment in terms of uh, getting your feet wet and getting some good advice right off the bat that you can put to use. Uh, Doug Fiscali's new DVD on carving rocks is supposed to be really good. Uh, he does them quite quickly and very realistic results. So. Maybe something like that if you want to model them the uh, the west coast uh, through the through the Rockies. You want to do a lot of rock carving, so uh, give it a try. Check it out. If you don't like it, your goods and materials, rolling stock you don't like, uh, videos you don't like. There's always somebody else who'll be interested in them. So your your loss is going to be very small, uh, even if you've decided that you don't you don't want to take advantage of the information that you've. Uh, You've seen. So, yes, a, a wide variety of points made there, Chris. But I think it's probably time we, we wrap this show up. We've we've discussed a number of topics and I think put a, a number of ideas out to the listeners. So if folks want to get in contact and uh, suggest questions, topics, ideas that we may not have covered with regards to turnouts and phone this evening, please get in contact with us. The easiest way to contact both Chris and myself and a wide variety of other listeners is to join the mailing list that is modelrailradio, all one word, dot com, and there's a link which will get you signed up to the mailing list. Or if you want to email me directly, tom at modelrailradio, all one word, dot com, and I'll uh, forward on the uh, questions to the mailing list and to, to Chris so we can work on them for the next show. Chris, it's always a pleasure chatting with you, and probably before the next show recording, you will receive a parcel of my junk, absolutely not mail, model rail related in any way, shape or form, but uh, hopefully some, some things to say thank you for your contribution to the show so far, and I look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. That's brilliant. I always have a lot of fun doing this, Tom, and I uh, look forward to our next chat. Talk to you soon, Chris. Take care. Cheers.